For decades, amidst police shootings of black civilians... Eric Garner's cries of, I can't breathe. Amadou Diallo's mother... New questions in the Breonna Taylor case... ...has been made in the death of George Floyd. We've had a very charged debate in America about whether or not the police are racist. Unions that protect racist and bad cops are an affront. But you know what shuts down all reasonable dialogue is throwing out the term racism before it's been proven. There's one man who stepped into that debate, not armed with emotions, but with the power of proof in cold, hard numbers. Even when you control for poverty, control for crime, when you take those out of the equation, there's still huge disparities left over. If you're in the business of trying to keep communities safe and you understand that safety does not hinge on your presence, you should be in the business of putting yourself out of business. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff is CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. He's an academic who actually loves his job, a data scientist who's pioneered in the field of implicit bias. And he's done the nearly impossible, used data to change how police departments operate from the inside. We discuss his successful effort to upend an entire police department in New York State, what police abolition means to him, and how a very rude interaction changed the course of his life. And she said, she looked me up and down and said, you know what, I don't think you're man enough to do anything real with your life. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff is a man of many aliases. Light-skinned philosopher was his rapper name in grad school. On one of the very first daily shows hosted by Trevor Noah, Goff got dubbed Nerdy Suge Knight. There's a program that Nerdy Suge Knight developed which trains police officers to de-link bias from their decision-making. I came up with another one for him. Police Whisperer. Oh, God. No, no. <laughs> no. No, don't put that on me. No, oh, I thought you were going to love that one. So first off, um, it turns humans into animals, which is a thing that I generally don't want to do. Secondly, it sort of suggests that I'm I, I'm I am and the work that, that my team has done is primarily interested in sort of situational change or institutional change and not with the ultimate goal of structural change. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm check. So. Don't treat people like animals, and it's bigger than the police. Yeah. Yeah, no, those are yeah, good things to it. put on a bumper sticker on my car, sure. Goff was born in Philadelphia and grew up in the bougie suburbs, he says. He calls himself the least impressive person on his mom's side of the family. She and her mom got master's degrees. As for great-grandma. Also a teacher with a college degree. Uh, her mother, also a teacher with a college degree. Her mother, not permitted by law to read and write and treated formally as property, but sent all six of her children to college after emancipation. As for dad, who's white. My dad was the first in his long line to go to college, uh, was the first one uh, in anyone that he knew in the community to go to college. Um, And so on the white side, education was new. On the black side, education was an assumption. 
It was, it was a requirement. His dad got a PhD in philosophy, which really affected conversation at the dinner table. It, it, it definitely shapes who you are um, when the conversation is, um, well, can I have the salt? I don't know. Can you? Okay, may I have the salt? Oh, so you're positioning me in, a, uh, in authority where I have uh, the power to give you authority over something that you would then consume. Oh I'm taking the salt now, dad. That's oh, wow. it shapes who you are. <laughs> That sounds really tiresome. Like it was charming when you started and then I was like, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> probably a little mix of both. That's probably right. <laughs> Goff got his PhD as well in psychology. He researched the relationship between race and policing. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, Goff was fresh out of school when he had the great luck of meeting someone who would change the course of his life. Her name was Chief Tracy Kazee, a high-ranking police officer in Denver PD. The two of them met at a conference at Stanford University, one that brought together academics like him and law enforcement like her. He had conducted a study on implicit bias using students, not police officers. She was not convinced that the two groups were comparable. And she says when she sat down next to him, she told him as much. Here's Kazee. And so for me, I took sort of offense to the fact that students were not cops. They do not know or have they been through the training that's necessary to, you know, make split decisions. And at that point, challenged him to come back to Denver and to do this work with real officers while I was eating off his plate. So that I think he probably left that part out. <laughs> so that's... That's not quite how it happened, but the outcome is absolutely that. <laughs> <laughs> she said you were going to disagree with her telling of the story. Yeah, no, because she gets it wrong. Um, we, there are witnesses. I want to be really clear. Um, okay. So as a police officer, she, as a former police officer, she should know better. But uh, what happened was she was sitting, she did not sit next to me. I sat next to her. She was sitting by herself at the back of the little, we had like a little trailer where we had a, a catered dinner. And I approached her and I asked, you know, may I sit here? Um, and she said, she looked me up and down and said, oh, you know what? I don't think you're man enough to do anything real with your life. Oh. And I was like. <laughs> oh, my God. So after after I picked myself off the ground, like it took like two, three full beats. I was like, you know, I really appreciate you dispelling the stereotype that all cops are assholes. My name is Phil. And I sat down. And And what is true is that we were instant siblings from that moment. Because I knew she was kind of serious and also kind of not. She agrees with that, by the way. She said the same. Yeah. Like the, she, she's, she's my sister. There's like, like from jump. Um, mm -hmm. And I asked her why she had no home training. <laughs> she was not exactly a charmer, though she schooled him in a way he really wanted. She told him the story of a black teenage boy who had been killed by police in 2003. So she told me the story of Paul Childs. Uh, a 15-year-old kid named Paul Childs uh, was shot in his own home. The police officer wasn't an evil person. Denver police officers had shot and killed him two years prior. Hmm. He was um, a, a, a young person, 15 years old, uh, with a serious mental illness, I should say. Um, in his own home, he grabbed a knife because he was so frustrated with his inability to communicate. At least that's how the family described it. Officers showed up and they shot him in his home. Ugh. And she went to a town hall meeting shortly thereafter, and a, a black mother said, you know, I just have one question for you. Look into my eyes and tell me honestly, do you train your officers to kill young black men? 
And I want to be clear for most police officers, this is a layup, right? Like this is of course not, ma'am. And I'm so sorry you have to ask. And of course we're all devastated. And like, fathers, it's such a reasonable question. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's such a reasonable question. And Tracy, mm-hmm. who is, mm-hmm. I mean, in this way, not very bright. She doesn't do the easy political thing because she yeah. has principles and a moral <laughs> compass. She said, <laughs> I don't know the honest answer to that question. Oh my God. Out loud where people could hear her. I know. It's amazing she got fired that day. Um, But she had such integrity and so much standing amongst both community and law enforcement that she could survive saying that out loud several more times. And then looking for a gullible social scientist to go and actually answer the damn question. Is it the way that we're training (laughs) these officers that ends up killing young black men? That's what. So she said, look, she bullied me into coming into Denver. And I said, I don't want to just do work that is respected by academics. I want to make sure that the work is useful to the people who can't wait for us to get the theory right. And so you end up going to Denver effectively to help answer the mother's question. Do you train officers to kill young black men, but answer it scientifically? I think by that time it had changed significantly, but that was a piece of it. The other part was what are the structural levers we can pull to make sure not only that we're doing better by black and brown communities, um, but that we're getting feedback that helps us to continuously improve. At Kazee's request, Goff sets out to Denver, staying with her and her husband in rural Colorado, in their home. Make no mistake, the mission was as groundbreaking as it was intimate. His first task Observe Denver police in action, day in and day out, in real time. Officers would not be able to hide him away when they didn't want him to see them using force. They couldn't pick when Goff did and did not ride along. He was going to see it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I, I, I saw the best and the worst of what people who want to keep communities safe can look like. I saw... Rich people in Denver calling the police because there was a brown person delivering a washing machine up the street. Um, I saw folks in, in the midst of substance abuse and mental health crises being evicted and law enforcement gets called for that and the ways in which they, they really wish they weren't there. Um, I saw the worst of law enforcement. I saw law enforcement doing terrible things to folks in, involved in, in sex uh, work. And I, I just, I saw a world that I had experienced some tiny sliver of in my terrible interactions with law enforcement, but nothing like the scope um, of what I got a chance to see. And so as you're witnessing this up close, you know, more vividly than you've ever before, how do you go from witnessing it to making suggestions to them? Initially, I was a little bit, well, not a little bit. I was nervous to say all the things I thought should happen because here's this strange woman um, who is both my sister and incredibly rude, whose house I'm living in, who, if she didn't tell you, her husband has a a handlebar mustache and is a bow hunter. So I walk in and there are animal heads on the wall. He kind of grunts at me as a welcome (laughs) greeting. (laughs) And uh, it was entirely plausible that if I was... um, too far off that I would show, I would show up with an arrow through me. Um, I, I wasn't sure that they would take what I had to say. Um, 
because none of the stuff that I was saying felt controversial. It just seemed obvious from from just observing. Like if folks had the resources, then you wouldn't have law enforcement here in the first place. And also all of the ways you've trained law enforcement sort of conspire to make sure that they end up doing awful things when they get called. Mm-hmm. So she really did give me permission to speak how awful the things that I had seen were and how heroic the things I had seen were in the context of all that awfulness. Once Goff made his rounds and had his anecdotal evidence, he made the request for data, individual personnel records of officers, citizen complaints, disciplinary incidents, performance evaluations. He wanted access to the use of force database. Police departments don't give that kind of access to independent investigators. And Tracy Kazee went to bat for it. She goes to the chief and says, this is the work we're going to need to do. I thought she had already gotten permission. She had not. She had been bluffing the whole time. Mm. Chief said, yeah, okay. We walked out. I'm pumping my fist. She's high-fiving me. I'm like, wait, you didn't know? She's like, oh, oops. Um, And then we started collecting the data. Um, Mm -hmm. We started doing analyses. And we started. I started being able to give back um, to Denver information on where the disparities were worst and where they were most responsible for them. Can you recall what you found in Denver? What did the analysis tell you? Denver was not unlike every other city where we looked um, and we have looked since, which is that racial disparities are there for sure. But even when you control for poverty, control for crime, which are the big things that people say, well, they're crime-ridden areas. The, the, it's the community doing this. When you control for those things, when you take those out of the equation, there's still huge disparities left over. And in fact, the, the disparities, they stay at six and seven and eight and nine and 10 to one. We're talking about stops and two and three and four to one when, it talks to, when we talk about police using coercive physical force. This point is worth repeating. Goff is saying that, according to internal police data, Denver PD was stopping and using physical force against Black residents at significantly higher rates than against whites. And so we gave that back and I said, look, you have no way of collecting these data. You have no way of holding officers accountable for for this information. Now that you know, if you don't change anything, it will be difficult for you to argue that equity is a deeply held value. You have a hard time saying, I really care about justice if someone brings to you an injustice and you don't even bother to measure it going forward. In exchange for the unprecedented access to data, Goff's team of scientists supported Denver police to make reforms. Goff recommended the department revisit how officers were being trained to identify who or what constituted a threat. He instituted pre- and post-testing at the police academy to track attitudes and behaviors in new recruits. Denver police revised its training program implemented bias testing, created a special mentoring program for female officers, and also made the department's disciplinary process more transparent to the public. What did you learn about how power works in that initial experience in Denver? I learned that most people in senior positions who have a boss are more interested in keeping their jobs than doing their jobs. Even if they started out with a set of principles, a set of things that they think are right, when their ability to do that work, to implement what they think is right, is conditional on other people's approval that they have that position, 
it is really difficult to decide I'm going to walk away. Hmm. Instead, they'd rather make the compromise so that the next person who is not as moral and not as righteous isn't in place. And if you do that for long enough, you don't have a lot of, of those original principles left. Hmm. That to me feels like one very real and also kind of pessimistic lesson. <laughs> I'm fishing for positivity. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I wonder in part, you've just told me, you know, Tracy Kazee, who was high up? She didn't exactly have permission to do what she was doing, bringing you in. She kind of suckered you. She kind of suckered her department into an arranged marriage. And um, she got something done. Is there a lesson from that? Yeah. I mean, so when I'm talking, you're asking about how power works. Mm -hmm. You can say that that's pessimistic. And I I suppose that, that it is. But it's also, to me, it was really useful for understanding how you get something to work. Because once I understood your interest is keeping the job and I understand what you think is going to help you keep the job, then I just need to make sure that I factor that into whatever I'm giving to you. So chiefs, for instance, they talk about the three-legged stool. You have to keep the public happy, the union happy, and the mayor happy. You're never going to have all three at the same time. So you're usually keeping, you're balancing on two legs of a stool. You ever lose lose two of the three and you're going to be out. And so I would say, so you've had protests around disparities in use of force. So public is not particularly happy. Um, The mayor is going to start to be unhappy about that. That means you're out of a job, right? Did I learn that, that tripod, right? So if you start collecting data on it and sharing that with the public, at the very least, you'll have the ability to be in charge instead of having folks who don't know your business, um, who are just gunning for you decide, yep, that's too racist. You got to go. Turns out there are a lot of chiefs who would rather lead than get dragged. And so they will implement systems that require that they collect data on on injustice. Um, And that actually is helpful for getting police out of situations where they shouldn't be in the first place, because now we've got data. Every time they're over there, something bad happens, nothing good happens. Let's stop sending them there. What he's saying is sometimes an armed officer can make things worse. For example, when a kid is stealing a bike or when a person is having a mental health crisis. So you have to understand how power works to make anything happen in the world. And I mean, one of the lessons was for sure that academics who are worried about issues of race and and justice often get so far in the weeds of the thing that they're studying that they forget the blunt instrument of power. Um, And so they don't do a proper, a deep process analysis of how power is functioning in the space where they're trying to intervene. And if you don't, then your recommendations are for shit. In the real world. Yep. Mm -hmm. Goff and Kazee rode the high and aimed nationally, together. Shortly after their success in Denver, the two founded the Center for Policing Equity in 2008. They wanted to replicate what they had done, to use the power of data and research to change policing across America. Now, here's an interesting and somewhat tragic fact about making change. That change can take on a life of its own. I'd asked your colleague, Tracy Kazee, what she thinks you've learned about power. I think he's learned how power can damage people. And if it is not cared for and enacted in a very mindful way, 
then you are complicit in any type of harm that you cause. And I think that he lays awake at night, concerned about whether or not he has caused damage um, just by where he is now in this moment in time. What's an example of that? What's an example of something that's kept you up at night, a contribution you've made that you think is being morphed into something not intended? Implicit bias trainings are exactly that thing. Implicit bias trainings. Goff says in 1999, he started analyzing the idea of implicit bias, basically the idea that we all have deep-seated, instinctive attitudes that we are unaware of. And everyone, including police officers, act on them. And the goal is to show, look, the racism permeates even beneath awareness. It is so broad and so deep, you cannot escape it. And so for everybody who thinks it's just about, I like Black people or I don't like Black people, it is so much more than that. And it worked. It convinced people that, that gave people a language for racism that didn't look like it wore well, you know, white robes and, and burned crosses. He dove into implicit bias research with Jennifer Eberhardt, a star social scientist and leader in the field. I remember saying to Jennifer Eberhardt, um, you know, at some point, some idiot's going to think this is the only solution, right? And that all bias is implicit. <laughs> um, and I remember her, her in, in the way that she did, she laughed. She's like, you're funny. Um, Based on that research, Goff would later make one of the very first implicit bias training modules for police officers. These days, this type of training has become ubiquitous in every field. You may have taken one yourself. And that, Goff says, is what keeps him up at night. There are definitely some people who think that all bias is implicit and that a training is the most important thing you can do to interrupt um, uh, structural racism. That's not how any of this works. Trainings are weak levers for change, always have been. And structural racism is not you know, solved by teaching each individual person that they press buttons faster when they're associating black with bad and white with good than the other way around. Mm, So you helped to create a field that's now been in some way muddied or poisoned or, or morphed to become, here's some cure-all pill, which it isn't. You don't even believe in. Yeah, I mean, and, and so I, I feel comfortable in my soul going to sleep at night knowing that I knew that it shouldn't be used for that. I've said that really loudly from jump. And when the Center for Policing Equity was asked to make an implicit bias training, we said, we can make a training on the psychological roots of discrimination where implicit bias is put into context, but we don't want to make any money off of it. We're going to give it away to other people so anybody can have it for free. We gave it to DOJ. I felt comfortable in my soul that that was to interrupt the profit motive of an industry that was way out of control. But I think if you are someone who, like, as my parents did, someone who marched in what we think of as a civil rights movement and wore suits in nonviolent protest to show people that you were dignified, you were not some low life, and therefore you didn't deserve to get beaten, you know that you weren't trying to solve all of racism with that. But you might feel some type of way when you see in the comment section, oh, that person got shot, that person got beat by the cops. You know, it's, it's those thugs. They need to pull their pants up because it's the same politics of respectability you were pushing on the streets of protest that's now being weaponized against black folks today. That's mm-hmm. how racism always functions. And so I'm kept up at night by, by trying to figure out, well, what do we do to prevent the effective tools 
as implicit bias has been as a research language from being perverted into tools against progress. After the break. Calls to abolish and defund the police take off. And Dr. Goff's focus shifts to New York. You're listening to Art of Power from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Dr. Philip Atiba Goff recently helped make history. In summer 2020, now former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered that all municipalities with police departments plan to reform those departments. We're not going to be, as a state government, subsidizing improper police tactics. We're not doing it. We were in the midst of what felt like a a really acute uprising post the public lynching of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Um, I got uh, a text from a friend of mine, uh, Svante Myrick, who's the mayor in Ithaca. Ithaca is a small city in upstate New York, known for gorges and the Ivy League University Cornell. And yes, the mayor is texting him. He's like, look, I'm, I'm, I don't want to just sort of paper over what's going on. I want to lead in this area. I think we've got enough support on city council and among community members that we can do something really big. What's the, the best thing we can do? Um, and I said to him in the text, I was like, well, you don't need to have a police department. He said, let's do it. It's like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> you texted that. You don't need to have a police department. Yeah, I don't need to have one. Um, I think that I think by that time we were actually on the phone. But yeah, I was like, you know, I don't know that you need to have a police department. Um, uh, he's like, yeah, cool. Huh. Let's let's make that happen. Um, uh, I mean, on the one hand, that sounds very cool. And it also sounds maybe a little blase, depending on sort of where you fall on the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, he, he was ready to do something big. And the conversation then became, all right, so... Is that a real thing or is that a slogan? I was like, it's a real thing and it's probably going to be hard to get there. You need to set up the conditions for it. Um, uh, And I don't know how long that would take. We've never done that in the United States. Hmm. So he's like, all right, so what what are the first steps? I was like, well, this is the part where we hand it off to the person who does the on the ground work. He's talking about Tracy Kazee, the officer from Denver who he founded a think tank with. Together, they got to work in Ithaca. They helped kick off a conversation with community members about what public safety means, if not armed officers showing up in response to every 911 call. They attended town halls. And then we have a conversation, right? So you guys don't trust this. First and foremost, no one has faith in the process. We've personally had conversations, Myrick. This is the worst fucking part. Sorry for the language. But what would you want to see? How, how could you begin to trust anything? 
So it's like literally tell me what you don't trust. So mm-hmm. we'll design something that takes that into account. We're going to troubleshoot that in the design of whatever we create. You know, any impossible project starts with a list of all the reasons why it can't happen. And I love that list because that list is the roadmap. All the things you got to worry about, those are solvable problems. How do you think they went to the moon? They spent a lot of time thinking about what they're going to do when they have to pee. And then when you got that solved, you get in a rocket, you go to the moon. Like it's, a, it's, it's thousands and thousands of thousands of unsolvable problems that you break down into smaller and smaller problems till you figure out the way to solve them. And then that's your roadmap. That's, it's the same thing for this. So once there was a plan for the plan, the folks in Ithaca, the folks in Tompkins County went about listening to each other about their experiences with law enforcement, about what really safety meant for them. And for most folks, safety, it's not, I know I can call the police. Safety is, I know I'm going to get to stay in my house. Safety mm-hmm. is, I've got, I can go to the hospital or to a doctor when I need one or when someone who I love needs mental health or substance uh, use support. Hmm. And when you start listening to the way in which we've delivered public safety, continuing to do it seems just impossible, unacceptable. What you're finding is that most of the things that people think of and want when you say the term public safety has nothing to do with an armed officer being able to show up somewhere. Yeah, there are places where the fear of violence is so fraught that they really feel like they want someone who can show up when they're afraid mm-hmm. that, that there's violence. Mm-hmm. But for most communities, the thing that safety means having the resources to take care of myself. And safety doesn't mean the presence of policing. It means the absence of fear. It's the absence of insecurity on basic needs. Hmm. And the presence of policing has been really traumatic for the folks who most engage with them, the folks in these communities that most need them. And that's the conclusion they came to as a, as a group, as a community. They said, we don't want it that way. We want to call for the right resources to the right problem. And that begins to create the shape of a plan. Early on, the police were not a fan of the plan. And the president of the New York State Police Union, Anthony Silfaro, said as much at a press conference. This proposal does not reflect the respondents' views on providing law enforcement for the city of Ithaca. This entire process you're describing in Ithaca, in Tompkins County, it's threatening the jobs of a workforce with benefits, with pension, uh, you know, good salaries, a road to being middle class and being homeowners. I'm talking but police work. It's it's good work by way of benefits. And here is unfolding a process that's basically saying we don't need as many of you. I mean, it could literally mean it, this kind of public safety could then mean a whole lot of layoffs for a workforce that is organized that doesn't want to lose their jobs. Yep. <laughs> that's true. I don't know what, what else you want me to say. That's a thousand percent true. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in the business of trying to keep communities safe and you understand that safety does not hinge on your presence and that in fact, the most safe communities don't need you very much, you should be in the business of putting yourself out of business. And police chiefs have been saying some version of that for a long time with the exception of the putting themselves out of business stuff, the not having a budget, But, you know, Scott Thompson used to say, give me a boys and girls club over 10 officers any day of the week. 
and there's no serious law enforcement executive that doesn't understand the, the communities that are the hardest for them to, to engage are the ones where there are the fewest resources. Like they get that. They also know they shouldn't be doing substance abuse, child welfare, unhoused issues, mental health issues. They shouldn't be doing those things. They're asked to do those things because we don't invest in other resources. And if mm-hmm. we did, the logical conclusion is we could use them less for it. As this community process is unfolding in Ithaca, did anyone from the community stand up and say, hey, I don't like what you're talking about. I want to make sure that someone armed can show up if my house is being broken into. I think that there are still people who are nervous about that in Ithaca and around the country. And so the union eventually came out the day before the, the vote. It was the Monday before the vote. I think the vote was Wednesday. The Ithaca Police Union formalizing their position on the reimagining public safety proposal. Here are the things in the new plan we can support. The Ithaca mm-hmm. Police Benevolent Association held their own conversations with community members. Their end conclusion that it's clear changes need to be made now. It wasn't a full-throated endorsement. It wasn't, we like this, we love it, let's go. Mm-hmm. It was, here are the couple things that we think we can get behind. Hmm. And no other statement about how much they couldn't stand it. Hmm. And I, I don't know that I'll ever see it again, but that is as close as we're likely to get to a police union supporting the dismantling of a police department. Now, the current plan says they'll all get to have jobs in the new department to begin with. Mm-hmm. But it sets up the conditions for make it a lot easier for the city just to decide we need fewer people with guns to manage our public safety. On March 31st, 2021, Ithaca approved 19 recommendations to reimagine public safety. The Ithaca Common Council came to a unanimous decision. To it's considered one of the most ambitious police reform plans in the country and probably why it's gained so much national attention. It would replace their police department with a Department of Community Solution and Public Safety. It would include both armed and unarmed first responders that would respond only to certain nonviolent calls. And the chief would be a civilian, not an armed officer. Goff and Tracy Kazee are quick to point out, nothing has changed quite yet. The amount of money going into public safety in Ithaca has not changed. No officers have lost their jobs. At this moment, summer 2021, there are working groups planning how to implement each recommendation and trying to determine what 911 call deserves, an armed response, and what does not. Still, the progress has Goth excited. What was your reaction to their partial endorsement? It was one of those lightning bolt moments again. Um, I remember like actually making noise. I think I shrieked a little bit out loud <laughs> when I saw it in my inbox. And I texted Tracy. I says, does this mean the union just endorsed um, the dismantling of the police department? She goes, hang on. Uh, it was it was very reminiscent of that first time when we got access to the use of force um, database in in Denver. Um, mm. There was there was a no small amount of tears. Tracy will probably deny that that she was teared up. And I mean, mm. rightfully, we, we're not done in Ithaca. A plan is not the same thing as implementation. It's not the same thing as results. And so, if there are folks who are skeptical, I, I mean, if they're not, I'd be surprised. Again, the skepticism is well earned. But a place where there will be a civilian head 
of a department of community solutions to public safety, um, where you got to justify staffing just like you do in every other public department every year, which means there can be layoffs or changes or reallocations every year. That is a fundamentally different place and different set of systems for making change to how we're delivering public safety. Let's talk a little bit about more universally your worldview, your take on public safety. You've said we have a nation that is addicted to punishment. We lock someone up for reselling cigarettes. We see someone get shot. And the first follow-up question is, did they deserve it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that seems truest is that we punish people for the choices they make within systems that give them only bad options. Um, and that seems dumb to me. Like we, we just shouldn't do that. Um, we should give people the resources they need to keep themselves safe. It would cost us less money. Um, it would buy us more dignity amongst the most vulnerable folks. We would get more genius out of those communities. Um, it, it would clear up my skin and, and grow hair back on my head. Uh, it just It seems like the way that we say we produce public safety does not produce public safety. Defund police. Smart brand or dumb brand? Oh, brilliant brand for the target market. I think part of the issue that really is frustrating to me is you have professional partisan operatives who are upset with organizers and activists who've long been ignored by professional partisan operatives um, because those, mm-hmm. those, those activists and organizers did not create a thing for professional partisan operatives. That's kind of dumb, <laughs> right? It's not the case that, uh, uh, you know, Neiman Marcus or Gucci are advertising to everyone. They're advertising to a select group of people. So oftentimes what you want to do is you want to target um, the way you engage to a small group of influencers. In this case, the influencers are everyday people who are tired of having their relatives and their community members shot by the police. You want to galvanize them and then let everybody else catch up. Kind of want to say amen. If you feel so moved. I do. I know we're I not do. in a black church, but I am of the black church at all times. So, Are you a police abolitionist? So that question, I think, is a little bit fraught right now. It's fraught in part because um, the term is so scary within uh, public uh, safety spaces. Um, <clears throat> it's also fraught because it, it means often it's a signal of a particular community that you belong to. Um, but prior to this past year, um, when the term uh, police abolition has really sort of exploded into the, the public imagination, um, I would refer to myself as a sort of Du Boisian um, uh, abolition Democrat. Mm-hmm. In 1935, W.B. Du Bois writes a book called Black Reconstruction. And in the book, mm-hmm. he talks about the project of abolition democracy. The project is mm-hmm. not just the, the destruction of slavery. It's the affirmative standing up of the systems that will rid the body politic of the lingering toxins of slavery because poverty is a form of bondage, right? Like mm-hmm. wage theft is a form of bondage. Incarceration is obviously a form of, bo- of bondage written into our 13th amendment. And in that context, calling me a Du Boisian abolitionist, that's, that's easy for me, but that's not the way that the word functions today. I mean, are there instances where you believe, yeah, I want an armed officer showing up like in the instance of a violent crime or threat thereof? I don't see a way that tomorrow 
we get rid of everything that we're doing on, on criminal legal systems and the world doesn't have some deep injuries from that. So there has to be a process to get where we're going. And I'll, I, I don't know if in the ideal world, there is nobody the state pays to manage when there are acts of extreme violence. But I do know those acts of extreme violence are incredibly rare. They would be rarer still if we were not a country that was addicted to guns. I also know um, <clears throat> that what we're doing right now isn't going to work and its size, its scope, as much as anything else that needs to change. It sounds like part of what's difficult in knowing the ultimate solution to, for example, violent crime, murder, rape, terrorism, you know, unfolding in a place, is that in your worldview, which is shared by many, the way police departments have been designed to use force to show up with guns, to show up ready for, you know, paramilitary activity. That very de design further ignites the problem. So it's hard to see clearly in the end end game, what does a solution look like? Part of the problem with, with seeing what the end goal looks like is that we have to travel a path to get there. I don't know what the path is going to look like, and I don't know where it ends. I can imagine that we take such good care of folks that we have eradicated violence. I can imagine that mm. if we are not able to eradicate violence between humans, um, uh, then we've got better ways of dealing with it than locking people in cages for long periods of time. I can also imagine that there are some things we say, you know what, that requires that someone be removed for, from society from a period of time, um, that we keep them safe and keep other people safe from them. And that's an incredibly small number of folks. That's about as far as it goes. I can't really imagine a, a huge, massive, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars industry, um, the way that we've got it currently constructed is the best way and the, and the ideal place that we go. But I don't know what, what those sets of outcomes are going to look like because we haven't traveled the path to get there. I do know the way we're doing it right now is absolutely anathema to the values that we say we have as a country and certainly to my personal ones. My lessons from Dr. Philip Atiba Goff. One, most people have their own self-interest at heart. Some want stardom. Some just want to hold on to their jobs. In any space you are navigating, make sure you understand what motivates different power players. Two, if you want to do something impossible, list out all the reasons it cannot be done and then design a strategy that solves for those. You too can pee in outer space. Three, sweeping change is not neat and tidy. It has chain reactions. If you are in the blessed position of making a big change, remember, it could haunt you. In this episode of Art of Power, I want to give a very special shout out to Hina Shravastava. 
You've heard her name before. She started as intern. She then became producer. And today, she is lead producer of this episode. Applause. Or snap fingers. Whatever it is you do. Also, shout out to Justin Bull and myself, Arthi Shahani, who helped produce. Our intern is Paloma Moreno-Jimenez. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Gratitude as well to Science Magazine and Colorado Public Radio for help with archives. If this episode landed for you, broke your brain, moved your heart, hit subscribe. Leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and family. Let me know what you think. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. A-A-R-T-I-411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.